If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jonah. Again, Jonah is past the major prophets and about halfway into the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. If you've hit Matthew, you've gone too far. When we last saw our friend, he was a prophet on the run. Chapter 1 gives us the helicopter coverage of a man who thinks he's getting away. All the while, we see the law closing in on him. Only God's intention is not to punish Jonah. It's to discipline him. You might bristle as you hear that, the idea of God disciplining us. Only he does so in love. I hope we see this today, that discipline is a place for God's people where justice and grace come together. God is just, meaning he's morally upright. He upholds his righteousness And God is gracious. He treats us not as we deserve. When God disciplines us, He does so in love, not condemning us, but correcting us. This morning, we considered God's discipline on Jonah from Jonah's perspective as he, in the whale, offers up this hymn of thanksgiving to God. I hope we'll see three things from the text. Jonah's distress, Jonah's deliverance, and Jonah's devotion, his newfound devotion to Yahweh. We'll see Jonah's distress, his deliverance, and his devotion. As a recap of last week, in chapter 1, God calls Jonah to preach to his enemies in Nineveh. It's the capital of Assyria. They have been and will be brutal to Israel. In fact, they will bring complete destruction to the northern half of God's people. Jonah fears that if he preaches to them, God might relent. And so filled with nationalism and self-righteousness, Right? He thinks that they have the sole claim to God and they deserve it. He would rather not preach. He would rather flee. He hopes to see the Assyrians burn rather than them experiencing the very grace that he will receive today in chapter 2. So Jonah runs. We saw that it was foolish. It's futile. You can't escape from the God of the heavens and the seas. And it's a fatal choice. The text pictures Jonah's flight from God as the flight from life as he descends deeper and deeper into his rebellion toward the grave. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the lowest part of the ship. Well, Jonah's journey toward death is not over yet. God in loving discipline will bring Jonah to the point of death that he might die to his sin and live to God. That he might give up his worthless idols and cling to the love of God. If Jonah is going to live, he must die. If we are going to live, we must die. Chapter 1 is loaded with action, right? As God calls, Jonah flees. God sends a storm. The ship threatens to break. The captain calls on Jonah to pray. Jonah is thrown overboard. In chapter 2, it's as though time slows down a bit. God saves Jonah and he holds him in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and from there Jonah recounts what happened to him his slow descent to the depths of the sea as he's drowning it is at that last moment at the height of his distress as he's experiencing what are the depths of Sheol that he turns back to God and he's delivered from his newfound deliverance he renews his devotion to Yahweh he experiences and confesses that salvation belongs to God. He is spared from death and he is given life. Jonah 2 for us, I think, is a picture of the gospel. If you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
We begin in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and move through chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Amen. You may be seated. As you might have noticed, the text is sandwiched between God's appointing and his commanding of the fish. The entire scene is hemmed in by God's sovereign control over creation. Just as God threw the wind into the waves, just as God ordained the lots, just as God used the sailors to throw Jonah into the sea, so God commands a great fish to save and preserve his prophet. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He is, as I said last week, using all of creation and human history to call us home. For Jonah, that includes a big fish. I'll say this quickly, mostly because I think it serves to distract from the book. Some people think much of what happens in the book of Jonah is too exaggerated to be real history, right? A man surviving in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Um, the plant sprouting up in chapter 4, Nineveh collectively repenting, they say it's too much. I think we are to understand the book as a historical book because the Bible presents it as such. Jonah is a historical person. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, which is a book about Israel's history. Listen to how detailed this verse is about which Jonah is included in. Verse 25, he, that is Jeroboam II, restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of of Arabah. According to the word the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah is a real person of history. The book is not a parable, though it is intended to give us more than bare historical facts. We are to, in a sense, read ourselves and Israel into the story. If you haven't figured it out yet, we are not the sailors, we're certainly not the whale, we're Jonah, stubborn in our self-righteousness, in rebellion, selfish with the gospel message, saved by God's providence and mercy. Nonetheless, the book is real history. It's too detailed to be a parallel, uh, parable. And most importantly, God, Jesus seems to think it's history. He references the book of Jonah at least on two separate occasions. We'll look at one of those later today. So no doubt much of what happens in the book is miraculous, meaning it's out of what we would consider to be ordinary from our perspective. None of us, I doubt, know of anyone who survived in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. 
The closest thing we have is Grant. <laughs> he was in a submarine for three years. Everything that happens in the book, it underscores that God is both the creator and controller of all that was or is. But friends, the biggest miracle of the book is not that Jonah survived a whale. It was that he survived the wrath of God. That God would pardon rebels like us when we deserve punishment is far more outlandish than anything about a fish. The God who created everything out of nothing, commanding his creation to do as he pleases, I get that a holy, just, and righteous king would extend pardon to sinners and no benefit to himself at great cost to himself, I do not get. That is the miracle of Jonah chapter 2, that dead, undeserving rebels are given life. With that aside, we turn now to Jonah's prayer and we consider first his distress. Beginning in verse 1, look at it. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Jonah is not praying to be saved from the whale. He understands that the whale is God's instrument of his salvation. And what Jonah is doing in this chapter is he's offering up this hymn of thanksgiving as he recounts God's saving work to him. Jonah is recounting his distress and God's deliverance and his newfound commitment or devotion to Yahweh. Common to Hebrew poetry, Jonah doesn't recall the experience in a strictly linear fashion. You might have noticed this as you read it this week. It's as though he's retelling the same story over and over. It progresses a little bit each time. He's stressing different themes. He begins with verse 2, which is actually a summary of the whole experience. I called to the Lord in my distress. Though Jonah tries to flee from the face of God, God in His sovereign kindness brought Jonah to the place of which there was nowhere else to flee. Come face to face with death, Jonah can do nothing but call out to God. I'm sure many of us can resonate with Jonah either at our conversion or just as we've experienced the hardship of life. It's often in our distress when in our stubbornness we've hit rock bottom that we finally call out to God. The book begins, if you recall, with God calling out to Jonah. This, I think, is the climax of the first half of the book. Jonah finally calls back out to God. Only he cries out in desperation. I said this last week, but wouldn't it have been easier for Jonah if he had obeyed in chapter 1? Jonah cries out in his distress, and should God turn a deaf ear, which would be his right? Jonah would be done. But that, of course, is not our God. Jonah goes on, and he answered me. He answered me. I think this comes as a surprise to Jonah. Though Jonah has spurned the grace of God and tried to run away like a rebellious teenager, God answered him. Friends, God is not sitting around in heaven waiting to give us a cosmic gotcha when we sin against him. He does not respond with then, I told you so. His ear is bent to the depths of the sea waiting for his son to call home that he might save him. Is this not our experience with God? That even as we are stubborn in our rebellion, He is steadfast to us. Jonah goes on, I cried out for help deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. He repeats himself here, this time stressing the consequence of his sin was death. Sheol is the grave. It's the enemy of all who live. From Jonah's perspective, as, and we'll see this the further we get into the prayer, it's not as though Jonah was on the brink of death. 
To Jonah, it's as though he died. And it is from within the grave, deep inside Sheol, that God hears his voice and gives him life. Jonah's sin was intent on bringing death. Friends, don't be deceived. Our sin seeks to kill us. God was intent on bringing Jonah to and through death that he might live. The salvation that Jonah and we experience is resurrection. Jonah's problem is he doesn't realize he's dead yet. He goes on, verse 3, when you threw me into the depths. Now that's kind of strange. When you threw me into the depths, look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Then they picked up Jonah, they being the sailors, when they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, the sea stopped its raging. In chapter 1, he says the sailors threw him in. In chapter 2, when Jonah prays to God, he says, you threw me in. I don't think Jonah's saying the sailors didn't throw him in. Jonah most likely wrote the book. In chapter 1, he says the sailors threw him in. In chapter 2, he's saying, God, you threw me in. He's acknowledging where it ultimately came from. This is what we would call in theology a concurrence. God and the sailors are both acting in the same event, but on different levels with different intentions. Okay, the sailors made a legitimate choice. They reluctantly and fearfully throw Jonah into the sea to save themselves. God throws Jonah into the sea to save his son. I mentioned this last week, but God's providence, his rule, his governance over all of creation, it's specific. It encompasses all things from the wind hitting the waves to the lots pointing at Jonah to the actions of free men. This ought to be a comfort to us knowing that nothing has or will happen to us apart from God ultimately sending it. That doesn't mean that bad or evil things don't happen to us. It certainly doesn't make God the author of evil. It does mean that even as men seek to throw us to our doom, that God is at work for our good. So God ultimately throws Jonah into the depths of the seas. His plane is unfolding perfectly, not to punish, but to protect, not to condemn, but to correct. He is not intent on destroying us, but disciplining us. Jonah goes on and he kind of begins again, Verse 3, when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. I'm convinced there's nothing that reminds you you're a creature quite like being at the ocean. It's vast, uncontainable, uncontrollable, unpredictable. And if you've ever been to a beach, if you've ever been to a beach where there are real waves, Hunter, you might want to edit that out later. If you've ever been to a beach where there are real waves, you know, not, not 30A, it's like this big pond. If you've been to a beach where there are real waves and you've been in it, you know the feeling of being knocked down wave after wave, holding your breath, spinning under the water, fighting to get up. You're at the mercy of the seas. Jonah finds himself overcome. Only it's not by the current, it's by God. God is breaking Jonah. There is nowhere for him to turn or to run. No ships, no sailors, no idols. He has come to the end of himself as God quite literally is pressing him underneath the waves of his justice and mercy. But friends, don't hear this as God being harsh. God is not being excessive. He's not even giving Jonah what he deserves. 
That would be to let him drown at the bottom of the sea, the thing that he wants. Thrust into an eternity as far away from the face of God, the thing he was trying to get, hell. God doesn't give his people what we deserve. He gives us what we need. And the heart surgery that Jonah needs is to be stripped of everything he thought would save that he might experience the salvation of God. The author of Hebrews says this about discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This resonates with me as a father. I love my kids unconditionally. And I want them to obey because what is right for them is what is good for them. This is why we discipline to correct them, to bring them back on track. Grace doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our sin. That would make him a moral monster. Grace means God doesn't treat us as we deserve. When we are set in our rebellion against him, God in his kindness corrects us. This is hard, I think, for many of us to grasp because we grew up in homes where our parents were harsh with us. They were excessive. They were hot-headed. They were capricious. Friends, God is not like that. He is perfect in his wisdom, in his love, in his mercy, never giving us more than we need, but what we never giving us what we need, but what we deserve. He knows that our sin, aim, our sin aims to destroy us, that it won't be content until our lives are buried under the wake of its destruction. And God chastises us perfectly as his sons to protect us from our own destructive tendencies. So God is bringing Jonah to the depths of the ocean, not to leave him there, but that he might find the God of life. All suffering isn't the consequence of discipline in a kind of, or all sin isn't the consequence of sin in a kind of tit-for-tat manner. I wouldn't encourage you to think about if you're suffering right now as though God is disciplining you in a punitive way. Sometimes it's really obvious, like if you're fired for embezzling, <laughs> you are experiencing the consequences of your sin as God is disciplining you. But we should think about everything happening to us, including our hardship, as a means of discipline in that it's instructive for us. God is using it to conform us to the image of His Son as He is stripping away our sin and our idols and He is showering us in His love even. Friends, I wonder how you see God at work in your life right now, in your hardship in particular, in the things you don't understand I would encourage you not to waste your suffering. Sometimes God in His mercy strips everything away from us so that all we're left with is Him. It's when we're trapped, be it at the bottom of the sea or in a crummy job or in a broken relationship or in a terminal illness or even in our home during the season. It's when we're trapped that we have nowhere to flee but to God. Jonah goes on, feeling the consequences of his sin. I think verse 4 is the height of it. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. As Jonah is sinking below the cold water, he thinks he feels the coldness of God. I have been banished from your sight. The irony, of course, is Jonah is the one who has been fleeing from God. Isn't that the effect of sin in our lives, though? The more we flee, the more we feel as though we have been banished from God. This couldn't be further from the truth. We'll see it the further we go. 
Verse 5, the water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Every time, every time I read this this week, I couldn't help but thinking, Jonah has seaweed on his head. Don't call him a seaweed head. <laughs> it's for fans of MTV in the early 2000s. Notice where Jonah is at now in the, his hymn, he's made it to the depths of the ocean floor. His head is covered in seaweed. Notice that God doesn't send the whale to save Jonah immediately. It wasn't as soon as he was thrown out of the ship. That doesn't mean that God is withholding from him. Jonah had yet to be brought to the point of death, repentance, and life. So Jonah reaches the end of his descent. What began in Joppa ends on the bottom of the ocean floor tangled in seaweed. He goes on in verse 6, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Jonah understands himself now to be as low as he can possibly go. He's made it to the grave. The Jewish conception of Sheol, it was like a prison leading into the underworld, maybe even at the bottom of the sea. And from Jonah's perspective, it's as though the gates of this prison from which no one ever returns is shut behind him. It's here at the bottom of the seas, on the brink of death, nowhere to run, tangled in seaweed at the end of his rope that Jonah finally turns to God and God delivers him. Jonah cries out in humility, in honesty. God hears and he delivers. We turn now to consider God's deliverance of Jonah. Two things precede this deliverance. I think important for us to see. The first is death and the second is repentance. The first is death, which is really Jonah understanding the fact that he needs a savior. Friends, don't miss this. Jonah needed saving long before he was thrown into the ocean. Before he was drowning in water, he was drowning in sin. Jonah's physical state is finally caught up to his spiritual one. He is in the grave. It is as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It wasn't until Jonah was drowning that he realized his need for a Savior. And Jonah must repent. It's not that Jonah needs to clean himself off before God will save him, like remove the seaweed from your head before you can enter the whale. Repentance is a change of direction. Jonah has been fleeing as hard as he can from the face of God. If God is to save him, Jonah must turn back to God. This is precisely what happens in verse 2 as Jonah finally calls out to God. Verse 4, as Jonah resolves again to look to God's holy temple. Verse 7, as Jonah remembers and prays to God. So deliverance is preceded by Jonah's recognizing his need for a Savior and his crying out to God, both of which can be summarized by the word repentance. Jonah is coming home. Verse 6 he explains his salvation. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. If the consequences of sin is portrayed as death, salvation is resurrection. God takes spiritually dead men and women just as Jonah was dead at the bottom of the sea and he gives them life. The life they desperately need but do not deserve. Again, the well for Jonah is not punishment. It's salvation. God is snatching his son from the consequences of sin from the jaws of death, and he's preserving him. Jonah, for the first time in the belly of the whale, is safe. He's safe from the breakers and the billows, safe from the current, trapped inside the whale 
on the way to Nineveh, he's safe from his own propensity to flee from God in sin. God knows in sins precisely what we need when we need it, not a second too late. He is as merciful to us as he is mighty. Rather than giving us death, he gives us life. Jonah recounts his deliverance once again, verse 7. As my life was fading away. Literally, Jonah is drowning. He doesn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. He is watching the last of his oxygen leave his body. And then he remembers. I remembered the Lord. Jonah's not simply bringing cold facts to mind about God. This is a relational remembrance that's leading him to repentance. Jonah is remembering his father. You probably have caught on to this, but Jonah is the prodigal prophet. If you're not familiar with the prodigal son, I would encourage you to go home and read Luke 15 this afternoon. The prodigal son there, wanting nothing to do with his father, flees. Treats his dad as though he's as good as dead. He then squanders his privileged position on foolish living. The land is struck with famine. He has nothing. It takes him losing everything. Everything, being stripped of all he thought would give life and pleasure until he's dying of hunger. Half dead, he remembers his father. Not a stranger, but his father. And he goes home. Goes home to find his dad waiting and running. Jonah remembers that Yahweh is compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster Jonah, as he's in the height of his distress, he draws from past experience and from the truth hidden in his heart. Friends, I wonder, what are you doing now to remember God in the midst of your suffering? Or if you are suffering, what are you doing to remember God? This is why we memorize God's word, why we hide it in our heart. There was no iPhone for Jonah to rely on on the ocean floor. I would also encourage you to to keep a prayer journal so that you can track God's faithfulness to you over time. This is also why we practice meaningful membership. We need brothers and sisters to help us bear our burdens when we are suffering and feel as though we've been banished. We need one another to remind us of God's character, His past work, His promises. Jonah here at the bottom of the sea, remembers that God is mighty to save and merciful to do so, and he turns to him in prayer. Friends, that is exactly what God wants to us, from us. He can handle your lament. Jonah goes to him, not putting on a fake smile, but in humility, in honesty. Not turning to a worthless idol, but to God. And he says, my prayer came to you, to your holy temple, Remember, Jonah thought he had been banished from the presence of God. He finds out he has access. He wrongly looked at his circumstances and thought, God must be against me. Friends, how quick we are to think that God is against us when things aren't going the way we'd like. Jonah is surprised to find out God is hearing his prayer because in his mind, the only two places further apart than Tarshish and Nineveh are heaven and Sheol. But what he finds out is there's no distance between the father and his children. It is as we heard and read earlier that neither death nor life, 
neither height nor depth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Jonah finds out what David read, wrote in Psalm 139, that if I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We might add, you are there with me. He finds out through experience what we've sung today by water still or troubled sea, still tis hand that leadeth me. It's a hard thing to be over troubled sea. It's a blessed thing to know that God leads us through them to himself. Because of our stubbornness, it often takes being crushed by the waves to realize the weight of our sin and our need for God's gracious, life-giving mercy. We foolishly think we can hide our sin. We can manage it. We can control it. It's not as bad as everyone thinks. God knows better, and so He disciplines us in love. Not to treat us harshly, not to bully us, not to play some joke on us, but to rid us by the rod those things that would seek to destroy us. He disciplines us in love to save His daughters and sons. Jonah moves from his distress to deliverance to his newfound devotion. We see it in verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. On the ship we saw this firsthand as the sailors prayed to their pantheon of gods. Their idols were worthless. The sea raged on. But they were not the ones at risk of losing God's faithful, covenantal love. That was Jonah. That was Israel. That is us. We rightly understand that idols are not just little wooden or golden statues that we bow down to, but anything that aims to be our highest love that thing that we cherish the most, that thing that we think about the most, that we desire the most, the thing that we are willing to sin to get, that thing that we sin when we don't get. If you're wondering what your idol is, you might ask, who or what or where do I flee to when I suffer? What Jonah is telling us here in verse 8 is that we cannot cherish idols and God. You will cling to one and abandon the other. It's as Jesus says, you cannot have two masters. You will love one and hate the other. God knows us, and this is why He disciplines us, that we might let go of these worthless idols. Nothing was going to save Jonah in Tarshish or at the bottom of the sea but God. Friends, nothing will save you in the midst of your hardship but God. Friends, I wonder what is competing with God's love in your life. What are you cherishing alongside of God? What does God intend to say to you through this chapter? What are the worthless idols you need to repent of to cling to God's love to you? Jonah goes on, verse 9, But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Jonah the prophet experiences, I think ironically, what the pagan sailors did the chapter before him. They moved from what they thought was death to life. They offer sacrifices to God to make vows. Jonah likewise moves from death to life. He offers sacrifices. Only he doesn't make new vows. He promises to fulfill what he's already vowed. Like us, Jonah's in covenant relationship with God, obligated to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And presumably Jonah had vows as a prophet. Like, I don't know, to preach when he's called rather than running. We'll see him do as he's called in the next chapter. For the Christian, our vows are most clearly seen in the ordinances. 
It's in baptism that we vow before the church and before God to turn from our sins and to walk with Christ all of our days. It's in the Lord's Supper, which is that covenantal meal that we're reminded of the covenant that we have with God through Christ. Our statement of faith says this of the Lord's Supper, that it is a bond, a pledge, a renewal of our communion with Him and of their church fellowship. It is a fitting thing that when we've been saved by grace that it moves us towards obedience. They're not antithetical to one another. Jonah has finally grasped the salvation he preaches and it brings him to the high point of his hymn. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. It doesn't belong to the sailors. It's not in Tarshish. It doesn't belong to worthless idols. It doesn't belong to your spouse, to your house, to your 401k, to your health. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That means it comes from God and from God alone. It also means it's God's prerogative whom He saves. Jonah has experienced the very salvation he was fearful the Assyrians might receive. Sadly, as we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah hasn't quite grasped the fullness of what this means. He likes that God has saved him, that He's for us. He just doesn't want God to be for his enemies. But that's for another time. Here we see Jonah finally experiencing salvation. The salvation he was commanded to preach. He comes face to face with the destruction he so badly wanted for the Assyrians. And yet he's spared. Rather than receiving punishment, he gets pardoned. He learns that salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Our scene ends a bit how it begins with God commanding the fish. Only this time, instead of swallowing Jonah, it spits him up. This is the completion for Jonah of his resurrection. Though he lay dead on the bottom of the sea, God saved him. He was entombed in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, only to rise up from the pit and walk again on dry land. Jesus notably references this in Matthew chapter 2. There, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're demanding a sign from Jesus. Like, we want proof that you're the Messiah. We need a sign. We know it's Christmas season because Starbucks has brought back the holiday cups. Well, they want a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. He responds, Matthew 12, verse 39, An evil and an adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah is what we would call a type meaning he's a real historical figure that existed to point beyond himself to something greater. That greater reality is Jesus. Jesus makes this clear in verse 41 as he says, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was entombed in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. That was just a sign. It was pointing beyond itself to a greater reality, Jesus' actual death and resurrection. Consider again the similarities and differences between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah was being disciplined for his own sin as he fled from God. Jesus was actually punished for the sins of his people. Jonah thought he had been banished from the presence of God. Friends, Jesus actually was. In Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out, Why have you forsaken me? The Son of Man, according to His humanity, is actually expelled from the loving presence of the Father because He's bearing the guilt of His people. And while Jonah is crushed by the waves, Jesus is crushed by the fuel, by the full fury of God's wrath. 
where Jonah is raised from the pit, Jesus actually walks out of the grave never to be touched by death again. Jonah 2 gives us as clear of a gospel picture of the gospel as I can think. A rebellious man drowning and as good as dead on the bottom of the ocean gets not what he deserves, but what he so desperately needs, life. He finds on the bottom of the sea love as vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. Friends, we see in this picture of Jonah and most clearly in Jesus that we have newness of life in Christ that if we're a Christian we participate in Jesus's resurrection that we have died when he died that we've been risen when he rose from the dead we await the day that he returns and raises our bodies from the grave if you're visiting us as a non-Christian we would encourage you to think this morning about God's mercy toward you my guess is the one thing you fear most most in life is death Jesus conquered it. You can have forgiveness of sins in Him. He really lived. Just as Jonah, He was a historical person. He lived on our behalf. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns in victory now and extends to you pardon if you would just turn from your sins and trust in Him. Like I said, Jonah, he finally experiences the love of God as God saves him. It's on the bottom of the sea that he experiences love as vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as a flood. We see that love most clearly at the cross. We'll sing about this next. Here is love on the mount of crucifixion. Fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. The guilty ones are kissed in love. The dead ones are given life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you are the sovereign one over all creation. And you are merciful toward us. You have taken pity on your rebels such that you would send your son in pursuit of us, that he would become a man to live and die on our behalf, that he would die for our sins, that he would raise from the dead. We pray that our hope would be in that resurrection. We pray that even today we would let go of our worthless idols, that we would cling to your love. We pray that you would continue to do surgery upon our own hearts that we might know and love you more and more. We pray that in your kindness to us, we would love you and each other more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.